0: You're listening to MEX Design Talk, the podcast where we discuss emerging technologies, user behavior, and how to design better digital experiences. This episode was first published on Thursday, the 24th of March, 2016. In this edition, we catch up on the latest from the MEX community, and we have an interview with Dr. Mike Short, VP of Public Affairs at Telefonica, and someone with deep connections to the history of mobile communications and the big picture. Of how it's going to fit into users' lives in the future. Hello, everyone. I'm Marek Pawlosky, the founder of MEX. Now, we talk about a lot of different things on the podcast and to make life easier for you so that you can find links to all of those various different references, there's always a set of show notes to accompany each of these episodes. You can find them at mobileuserexperience.com in the podcast section. Also, let us know how we're doing. Now up to episode six of the show, and we'd love your feedback. Uh, You can easily find a link to email us, Uh, at mobileuserexperience.com or send us a tweet. We are at mexfeed. Now, Alex Guest, my co-host on the show, uh, is off busily preparing for an interview that we're going to be recording together this afternoon with another member of the Mex community. So I'm doing this edition on my own. Now, what's been going on in the Mex community since we last spoke Well, uh, I'm delighted to welcome Tribal Worldwide uh, as a new patron of our MEX16 event on the 12th and 13th of October in London. Uh, Jonathan Lovett-Young, who is the Head of Service and Experience Design at Tribal, uh, is actually going to be giving a talk at MEX. And he's focusing on this notion of strategies for how we manage user interruptions. Now, this uh, whole area of how we understand and respect and interact with users' attention spans is fundamental to the future of digital experience design across all sorts of different classes of devices and and industries. Uh, And he's got this working title of, Is Time the New Enemy?, Jonathan himself uh, has got a pretty deep pool of experience to draw on. He's been in this area for about 17 years now helping brands like Asda and Argos and BT and O2 and National Rail and Volkswagen uh, to shape their digital experiences. Um, So welcome to Tribal Worldwide. It's great to have their support uh, and I'll be looking forward to Jonathan's presentation in October. Uh, If you're interested in finding out more about how you can get involved with being a patron and a sponsor of the MEX event, uh, do get in touch. You can find details on mobileuserexperience.com of how to get in touch with us. And I'll be looking forward to introducing you to the rest of the patrons that we have supporting the event in October. In another bit of news, uh, you may recall from the last edition of the podcast that we spent uh, a good deal of time talking with Louisa Heinrich, the founder of Superhuman Limited, uh, all about um, user experience principles for this emerging area of robots and connected machines and the Internet of Things. Uh, And Louisa, um, during the conversation, uh, mentioned some of the work that she'd done in the last design challenge that she led at the MEX event, which was back in March 2015, uh, where she actually led a team of people um, focused on trying to uh, define a set of principles for the etiquette of how these kind of new digital experiences might behave. Uh, And subsequent to the release of the podcast last week, we have now published those principles, uh, including some little sketch illustrations to go alongside them. Um, There are five different principles ranging from the notion that uh, these are devices which should make the users of them feel like they have superpowers through to that kind of balance between how you make them relatable to humans without over-anthropomorphizing them. So those are all now freely available at mobileuserexperience.com, and I would encourage you to go and check those out. Now, on to the interview for this edition of the podcast with a chap called Dr. Mike Short, uh, who was awarded the CBE uh, in 2012 in the Queen's Birthday Honours List for services to mobile telecoms. Uh, And it occurred to me that I perhaps should explain a little bit um, for listeners outside the UK what the CBE is. Now, this is an award which is bestowed by uh, the Queen uh, on people who have made a particular contribution to their industry. Uh, And it recognised the work that Mike has done over decades uh, in the, the telecoms industry. Um, He's someone who can trace his roots right back to the earliest days of mobile networks and yet has remained connected to its future and particularly how that future can be relatable and usable and useful for the broadest range of customers uh, and user lifestyles. So let me start with a little story to put this in context because Mike is someone that I've had the, the privilege of knowing for a great many years now before we sat down to do this interview the other day. So I want to take you back to, I guess it would have been 1999, maybe 2000. And somehow Mike and I have ended up on the same judging panel for the awards at one of the first Bluetooth World Congress events. Now this was when Bluetooth was just emerging as a technology uh, and they'd held this big conference out in Monte Carlo and To be frank, I don't quite know how I ended up on this awards panel because at the time I was young and very green indeed. Uh, But anyway, uh, we were both on this awards panel. Um, We'd been taken out to a rather good restaurant with the rest of the judges in Monaco to decide on the the winners um, for these Bluetooth awards. And it turned out that we were both heading to the airport at the same time. So there's me as a very young green enthusiast for mobile telecoms, and Mike, who already was someone who had quite a reputation within the industry. uh, And we end up sharing a a taxi to uh, the airport in Nice. Um, And looking back, I mean, I bent this guy's ear for pretty much the entire journey, expounding on my thoughts about uh, mobile telecoms and probably a whole bunch of stuff, which uh, he already was living and breathing. Um, But being the kind of guy that he is, he sat and he listened very patiently to the whole thing while I uh, banged on about all these different exciting things, which I saw happening within uh, mobile communications um, and was very gracious about the whole thing and stayed in touch. ever since and then went on when we did our first MeX events to come and chair some of the uh, early sessions that we had and uh, came back again in, in subsequent years uh, to do a bunch of stuff around the idea of connecting the next uh, billion people as well um, so his own career as I say is something which can trace its roots right back to the early days of uh, mobile telecoms working for BT and, and Cellnet um, and then for the last 16, uh, 17 years as vice president at Telefonica Europe, one of the the big operators. Um, Now, Mike, right from the outset with the things that we were doing with MEX, really urged me to uh, ensure that we had the broadest possible involvement in this question of how you shape user experience. Uh, And that included making sure that we didn't just focus on having design people talking to design people, but we went out and we incorporated chipset companies, network operators, handset manufacturers, software companies into the discussion so that we had all of the people responsible for driving change in user experience participating in the same initiative. Uh, And Mike was really quite instrumental in influencing me to make sure that we had that breadth of participation from the outset, and also the breadth of outlook as well, uh, to make sure that we were covering things like accessibility, connecting people in emerging markets, all topics which Mike himself uh, has gone on to do uh, important work within. Uh, So we sat down the other day uh, to do this interview at the Telefonica offices in London uh, and it's actually the first one of these podcast interviews so far that uh, I've done face to face with someone so that gave it an interesting dynamic Uh, it was a thoroughly enjoyable conversation great to catch up with Mike on these things Uh, and um, I hope you enjoy the areas that we covered and how it all connects into this big picture of how mobile at the macro level is really making a difference users' lives. Here we go. Well, welcome to the podcast, Mike. Thanks for taking the time to come and do it. Uh, You know, this is actually the first one of of this podcast series that I've done face-to-face and in person. So thanks for agreeing to come along for the ride and, and the experiment, as it were.
1: It's a pleasure to be here, thank you for interviewing me. So, where do we
0: start? Um, I mean, you and I have known each other for, I guess what you'd call a worryingly long time now, and and your roles have been, I suppose, quite diverse over that time, with various different uh, interests. But one of the things which I suppose has always struck me about the work that you've done, is that there's that unifying theme of trying to understand how technology really relates to people's lives, which obviously is very much at the heart of what we're doing with the the MEX initiative as well. Um, Specific to uh, how you think about the network and thinking back to um, when you first got involved in that area of of networks, uh, what was the role when you first started off the network in forming the customer experience for those early mobile users?
1: Well, going back 30 years when I started, the network was uh, seen as a key enabler to connect people. Uh, We knew we couldn't always sell handsets or devices direct to those customers, but we had to understand them in terms of their relative price and battery duration and uh, some which had displays, how how we could put information on those displays. But but the emphasis was very much on the bearer called the network. Uh, We had to think about how, the network gathered data that was suitable for customer care and suitable for billing. But generally, the device was a secondary element, but it became much more important as we moved from voice to data.
0: So we flash right forward to the, the present day now. And Telefonica, you're looking at 25 million customers. You've got uh, retail operations and, and points of service. You've got all of this different information and touch points, if you like, with the customer. What do you feel are most important today in how you understand how your customers are behaving and how you can serve them best as an operator?
1: Uh, we're handling terabytes of data per day in the UK for our 25 million customers. That gives us an awful lot of information to help find the customer in the right location, to deliver a call, whether it's a voice call or a data call or video, But it also means that we have to use that data to predict requirements, predict future requirements for those customers. In addition to the network-based data, we have a lot of billing and customer care data that we're able to analyze to help forecast future demand and provide a service of today and tomorrow. But when we look at devices, we often look at how easy they are to use. Um, Two years ago, for example, I ran an accessibility initiative looking at people who were uh, blind or deaf, or maybe had dexterity issues. And I think we were quite amazed to discover that one in seven people have a an accessibility challenge of some sort. And that made us look more deeply at some of the devices that were out there, but particularly also some of the mobile internet type solutions that help with translation, text to speech, or speech to text. Maybe some of the solutions that help with location, perhaps for the elderly maybe some of the techniques that allow voice-based dictation, not just Siri, but some other solutions such as that. So clearly we need to think about all the customers in the different segments and indeed sectors, whether they be consumers or business.
0: Now that, that breadth of understanding customer segments I mean, is something which I recall right from our earliest conversations about when we were getting the MEX initiative started. Uh, I can remember you distinctly encouraging that kind of uh, breadth across industries, across different customer segments, and how important it was to understand user experience in that regard. But I mean, for you personally, I mean, when did that moment come when you started to realize that uh, inclusive design wasn't just something which was necessarily limited to people with, say, particular disabilities, but actually something which could benefit the market as a whole in terms of how it improves user experience?
1: I think one of my experiences with texting was when I was chairman of the Mobile Data Association back in about 1998, and initially you could only text somebody on the same network in the UK. You couldn't text across the networks to another network or another customer, so therefore the CellNet to Vodafone links were not in place back in 1998. Uh, Between CellNet, which became O2, and Vodafone, uh, I helped put together the cross-network texting. And one of the things that we did then was very clearly do some customer trials to see what the adoption rate would be. And that gave us huge insight into the language of texting was totally different from what we'd expected. Yes, abbreviations that we've known and become uh, lovers of, but but also the ease of actually entering those text messages was just not in, uh, easy enough back in those early, early days. So when we opened up the gateways, we were amazed that it went from less than 100,000 text messages a year to the following year 1999 to over a billion text messages in the year and one of the things that we did to promote that was we looked for the nation's oldest texter and we found a lovely lady called Betty Turner who was 89 and she was a PR man's dream she went on national television was interviewed and because she was a grandmother by this stage she was asked the simple question why do you do texting and she said it's the easiest way to stay in touch with my grandchildren. And a very simple answer, not a technical answer. And, and I think from that point on, I think we realized that thinking about user behavior and dexterity and ease of input, ease of use was vital for usage. And as a network operator, we need usage to pay for the investments we've made.
0: That's interesting because I think I mean that's another theme which I've noticed in your work over the years. You're talking there about the idea of those interconnect agreements between operators to to get all that interoperability happening and it's something which um, I guess you've approached in a few different ways over the years. With the Mobile Data Association, with GSM originally which was obviously very much about bridging those compatibility gaps between networks, first in Europe and then around the world. Uh, But I think we've got to a point now within the technology industry, where there almost seems to be this um, sense that any time you try to do things through consensus or standardization, um, there's that hangover, if you like, that it's going to be a very slow, cumbersome process. And it's become perhaps more fashionable for companies to go out there and say, we're going to own the whole of the customer experience ourselves. We're going to do it all ourselves and we're going to control what we deliver. And yet over the years, we have seen the myriad benefits of that, that consensus. I mean, looking to the future, what do you think about those approaches and, and the kind of areas where we may still need that kind of consensus-based approach of getting big consortiums together to solve those, those big connectivity issues?
1: Well, GSM, for example, in mobile is the most successful technology on this planet in terms of adoption, in terms of coverage, in terms of reach. And if we haven't got a successful standard there based on consensus, it wouldn't have helped to reduce the cost for everybody and improve the reach for everybody. Now, clearly some of these standards do take time. And uh, you know th- there's a downside to that, I, I get that. Equally, the internet, I think has had extremely wide reach based on consensus building over time, but both of them have stood the test of time and continued to evolve. Uh, GSM towards 3G and 4G and indeed in the future 5G now incorporating Wi-Fi as well as internet Internet evolution in its own right. So I think they are evolving even if the processes behind them may be cumbersome. But I also live in a world which is much more multidisciplinary. Uh, I hate the idea of being in a school where I only had one teacher. I liked different disciplines that I could learn from. Uh, I also would hate a medical system or a health system that only had one type of clinician. You know, I think we live in a multidisciplinary world where we need different disciplines to help us. So the idea of being locked into a proprietary standard or a proprietary teacher or a proprietary clinician, to me is wrong. We need the best of innovation to flow and the mechanisms, whether it's with standards or not, need to be much more multidisciplinary.
0: With regards to what's happening with devices, you know, the sort of devices that you see on your network, uh, do you feel that uh, we've seen um, an increase or a decrease in the kind of diversity of, uh, of devices that are available to customers and the kind of experiences that they can have with them?
1: I think the diversity of devices that's now that are, that are now being connected to our networks is increasing. However, to your point about a lack of diversity, I think in the shops for consumers, Many of the devices look very black and very rectangular, and they don't look very different compared to the wider range of design differences of the past. (laughs) The reason I say we're seeing more devices is that we don't just connect devices sold through retail shops. We clearly connect modems for the Internet of Things. We connect devices that connect cars. We connect devices that connect street lighting and smart city type applications. We connect medical devices they are sometimes sold through different sales channels. So the broader point is diversity has increased, but in the consumer retail segment, the range of devices does not appear to have increased significantly recently.
0: Does that worry you about the future of, of handsets of smartphones in, in particular in that segment?
1: Uh, I'm not worried about it. I think uh, the choice of smartphones relates to the fact that it's a global market and people are trying to design for a global market. What has varied a lot more is the range of applications that now will work on the smartphones. So you see a lot more diversity from the internet space uh, because anybody can develop on the internet. And that diversity, I think, will continue more in software form than in hardware form.
0: And thinking about all of those Internet of Things devices that you alluded to, I mean, how much of a, a challenge is that for you as a network? As you start to think about how that uh, mix, if you like, between handsets in the hands of a consumer versus Internet of Things devices, which may be embedded, invisible, woven into the fabric, if you like, of, of our physical environment, what kind of challenges does that throw up for you as a network as you start to think about how you can guarantee that they provide as good an experience as you can deliver to a consumer with their handset in their pocket?
1: So the networks we've built around the world in the 25 or so countries where we have a presence have to be flexible for different sales customers and sales channels. And I think what we're seeing with the Internet of Things is new sales channels emerging that we need to support. So the bigger issue is not so much the network, it's the support to those sales channels. How do we do the provisioning that's relevant to a car oriented sales channel or a smart home oriented sales channel or a smart city-oriented sales channel. Those sales channels are quite different and they have different customer care requirements, different data analytics requirements. If we talk about health in particular, health is very sensitive data, so we're very careful about what we do in the healthcare arena. Assisted living in the home, I think some customers are already asking for that. Uh, Some wearables, we're already supporting some wearables. But how deeply we go into healthcare depends really on is the support channel ready, as well as the right type of data analytics ready.
0: Now, I know the health and assisted living area is something which is quite important to you personally, we were talking about it before you started recording. Uh, Are you seeing any design approaches there which you think are particularly well suited to ensuring that those become positive digital experiences in customers' lives? What are some of the early things you're seeing in the way people are actually designing and then deploying and testing these things? I think
1: the early forms of healthcare and assisted living uh, we've seen most in the apps space so far. And that can be simply people designing things in their own garage and putting it out there through the uh, big store, if you like, for download. Some of the apps I prefer are much more uh, identified by customer support groups or online groups. And I support something called myhealthapps.net, which is an online directory of some of the best apps that are out there. And they've been recommended by customer groups because they may be best for diabetes or best for blood pressure measurement or best for uh, solutions for the blind, for example. Now, that's a directory and that will continue to see more innovation added to it over time. What we also see, I think, is a growth in wearables. And some of the wearables need better feedback loops, more so than just simple apps. So wearables may wear out. We need to understand how suitable their design is for different types of people. Um, Equally, they need to have accurate measurement if they're going to be effective wearables. Uh, Then if we have a a wristwatch or smartwatch type solution, we need to know that what is being measured can be accurately displayed and interact with the larger display of a smartphone. That, I think, needs some more co-design effort uh, with clinicians in mind because there is measurement at the heart of it all. As we go forward with other medical devices, there are clearly a lot of regulatory hurdles to be assessed. And I think usability is a key regulatory hurdle in itself. Uh, If the medical regulators don't like a medical instrument, they may reject it on usability grounds alone. But they often reject it on things like measurement quality or risk to people's lives. So we need a proportionate approach, whether it's in apps or in uh, wearables, or in medical devices, to make sure the safety of the consumer is at heart, but also the accuracy of measurement, if it occurs, is also reflective of, of, of the type of service needed. So I think user design has got a long way to go in the apps, wearables and, and medical instrument space, uh, but it's made a good start.
0: Yeah, I would agree with a great deal of that. I mean, we've run sessions uh, over the last several years at our MEX event where we've brought together people from, medical backgrounds, people involved in the production of medical instruments, and also those, I guess, who are coming at it more from the traditional mobile telecoms and digital industry background. And there's clearly a huge amount that those people can learn from each other. But there is also that slight tension when those worlds come together about understanding the different life cycles of each of those industries, understanding things like those different requirements around the accuracy of measurement that that you mentioned as well. Uh, Are you seeing any examples of that in particular which you think um, show a path for the future of how we can actually work together between those different industries to deliver that that kind of experience?
1: Yes, I'm involved with a couple of um, health research and testbed type activities in the UK. Uh, Recently in January 2016, the National Health Service announced five national testbeds in different parts of the UK and two specialist testbeds for the Internet of Things. One of those Internet Things test beds is down at the University of Surrey, and, and we're actively supporting that. That's looking at mental health and dementia and Alzheimer's. And it's looking at how do we help the people live longer at home, healthier lives at home, with things like alerts and alarms, things like pill reminders, things that can help you with wearables where people might not get lost so easily. Uh, we need to make sure that the data is handled sensitively so it is a test bed. We need to make sure it can scale cost-effectively. We need to make sure it's fit for the individual and not Big Brother tracking people unnecessarily. So it's about helping people have a healthier, longer life at home rather than being moved into a hospital setting prematurely or perhaps having a pathway that's not really fit for purpose. Uh, People's mental health can be stimulated also by personal memories. So if we can help with... Personal memory banks and things like that. We can see technology helping to remind people of some of the joys they've had in the past, some of the fond memories they they wish to keep.
0: Let's go back just a, a little bit because I'm quite interested to to get your views on, I suppose, some of the things which take longer term investment to build a really great experience for customers. Of which I think health and, and this whole emerging area of Internet of Things is probably going to be one, but. You have a history of these things, which I think gives you rare insight into how they work. I and mean, when I think about when you and I first met, for instance, it was doing work around the emergence of Bluetooth and judging things like some of the first Bluetooth awards out in Monte Carlo. And obviously your work with GSM and then with the Mobile Data Association, always um, trying to... Uh, Find those emerging techniques, trying to measure them, trying to raise the awareness around them, raise awareness around those those issues. Now, when you think about some of those ones which have gone on to emerge as winners, Bluetooth is probably one, and texting, as you did with the MDA and GSM, certainly. Are there certain defined characteristics to that process that you can pull out to understand how you make? future situations like that successful and how we might find a pathway for things like health and IoT to make them succeed on the same scale as those other technologies that you've been involved with.
1: For those three examples of Bluetooth, GSM and texting, I think clearly the internationalization is absolutely key because you're sharing R&D across many countries, across many customers, but you're helping to bring down the cost and improve the accessibility of the technology. In all three cases, they are based on standards, and I know the standards process is not always as fast as people would like, but the reality is it helps to add consistency to make sure the adoption is easier uh, in the eyes of the customer or the sales channel. Um, What we don't always get right when things are overly standardized is some of the design elements, because actually design is a very personal thing. So you've got a bit of a dichotomy cost reduction for global adoption versus design for adoption. Now some start from the design end much more fully than I do. But I think at the end of the day, there's some compromises and the compromises have to go hand in hand with the utility. You, you might find it highly, highly useful if it's low cost and nicely designed. And sometimes they're not in equal balance. And I think we need to think more fully about the balance between the two but I'm a firm believer in internationalization and economies of scale because that helps with adoption and cost reduction yeah that
0: that balance if you like between those things and the the more personal elements of of design seems to me to be absolutely key here and uh, I mean thinking back to um, the start of the the MEX initiative I guess some of the early conversations you and I had around that at the time um, this is going back I suppose 2004 now so 12 odd years ago we actually had quite a hard job convincing people in the network operator business, as it were, that design was a concern for them, that they should be involved in those kind of conversations and, and involved with a community like MEX, where the main constituency still is people who would describe themselves as designers. But given that we're on a podcast about that topic and much of the listenership is in that area, what would you say today to people who are working in the area of design and trying to understand how all of these components fit together what are some of the priorities you think that the design and user experience community should be looking at to make sure there is and continues to be that healthy relationship between people who are coming more from, if you like, the, the technical and the engineering background, and those who come more from the uh, you know, the, the, the human disciplines, as it were, of, of design and usability?
1: I, th- I think the nature of design now is increasingly software-based rather than on the hardware of the mobile phone. So yes, there is a room uh, there is plenty of room for some designers in the hardware space, but a lot of that design is looking at the graphics, the interaction with the web, the service design, the solution design. And that's a softer design skill perhaps than traditional hardware design. If we think about that from the internet growth point of view, Uh, We've seen a huge boom in web designers who have to think about usability for different types of customers, whether it be to help the the boom in e-commerce or to help the boom in uh, web-based video or to help the boom in other Internet-based services. So there is a lot of room for design. And I think design leadership will be seen much more in the future than in the past.
0: When we think about how that then connects with education and the new generation of people coming into fields, engineering, design, all of which we know are going to be vital to shaping these digital experiences in the future. I know you have links with several universities. What are some of the things you think that we should be prioritizing within education and academia to make sure that the next generation of people coming into this industry are equipped to understand how we can design better, more personal experiences for users?
1: Well, I think the trend towards digital design is key, really. So even if people have creative skills based on art or even fine art or music, I think having a digital understanding in the mix is vital. If I was to say the same in healthcare, some of the clinicians today, frankly, are not trained enough in some of the digital techniques that are going to be important for their profession. How do they plug together systems? How do they look at the measurement evidence data? How do they use that for better effective healthcare? So I think digital is the key ingredient for whether it's creative industries or or the health professions. I'd also add that I think some of the uh, solutions that are necessary for the digital economy mean that if you're interested in transport, there has to be a digital lens to that. If you're interested in the car, for example, thinking about how the displays in the car are going to lead to safer driving, better informed passengers. But, But maybe better informed passengers as well as drivers in the video sense. So why don't we have today internet on wheels in every car? Um, If we think about some of the design impact areas on energy uh, with assisted living and with smarter homes, we're going to have to think about displays in homes and how people in the home can intuitively see what the displays mean. It could be a display through the TV screen, but it could be other screens as well. Uh, We're going to see much more in the way of Design solutions for future homes that will make our lives much easier, whether it be for assisted living or entertainment or even energy control in the home. Um, I'm not trying to suggest all designers go down the smart metering route or the smart healthcare route, but thinking about what a smart home looks like and could be, I think, has a huge opportunity going forward.
0: One of the things we've noticed in the MEX community is. That as the demand has risen for user centered design within digital, so too has the sense among people within that who are working in that industry in in the middle of their careers um, that they need to be increasing, if you like, the supply of new talent coming in. Uh, And yet, that conversation often seems to to break down or at least not happen rapidly enough that the graduates emerging from universities are equipped with the kind of skills that can be useful in what is a very fast-changing digital environment. Do you think that there's more that people who work within digital industry could do to have those discussions with universities and start to play a bit more of an active role in shaping how some of that education is done? I think industry is already
1: involved with many universities. Uh, it's not always visible. Uh, I sit on the board of Ravensbourne at Greenwich, for example, uh, which is a specialist fashion and broadcasting educational institution, offers degrees in those subjects. It does architecture as well. And the reason I I'm involved, it initially started because they were moving location to be next to the O2 in Greenwich. And so my colleagues said, can we just understand what this ed- educational institution is going to do when it moves next door to the O2? Um, however, it was never seen by us as just brand protection. It was seen as being... A synergy with the venue called the O2 at Greenwich that we could have and now some students who train at Ravensbourne work at the O2. Some people who worked at the O2 go into the Ravensbourne facility and bring in some of the student talent to help them with other special projects. So I think industry traditionally has used universities in a variety of ways. We continue to work with universities where we can see a need and I think from a design point of view um, we'll probably Uh, use Ravensbourne shortly for the driverless car trials where we need graphics that can be put temporarily into driverless cars. We need students that might help us with the trials, maybe to guide various passengers around the track as we do in the driverless trials. So that will help the students think about design from a kind of project point of view in a connected car or driverless car sense. Um, I'm sure we'll do some other projects with universities. We've dealt with about 20 universities over the last five years. I I don't think that's suddenly going to stop. Other companies may not do it the same way, but that's the way we do it today.
0: No, it's nice to hear those projects happening. I mean, we've certainly found the same thing. We work um, quite closely with Brunel University, with the, the MEX initiative. And that's one of the things that always strikes me about that particular relationship is that once students start to see how their particular talents can be applied to projects within the digital industry, there's often this aha moment that things that they didn't realise were perhaps possible as a career path through the things that they've done actually suddenly become very relevant. I and mean, there's a lot within the digital industry to, to interest them. Now, for you personally, um, what, what comes next? What's left in the sense that there's an awful lot that you have done and achieved within this industry over you know, a, a pretty lengthy period of time if I may say so if that it doesn't age you too much um, but are there any things left that you would um, like to see happen or would like to be involved in changing um, as you think about the future of, of your interest in this area?
1: Well I always uh, had planned to work Till twenty twenty, or maybe twenty twenty five, if if the mood takes me, but certainly twenty twenty. And so, within the next five years, I think we're just going to see a video revolution. I think we see the traffic on our network every day just rising and rising, particularly in the video space. And I think um, when we see some of the areas like virtual reality, when we see some of the three sixty degree cameras, when we see how much power video may have in a customer care sense. When we see how much video could be used to help with retail or security or transport we can see a lot of opportunities in that video space what we have to be careful about is making sure it's fit for purpose and design ready and that isn't just a network challenge or a device challenge it's a solution challenge really so i would hope to do a lot of work on video i'd hope to also make sure some of the foundations already laid for 5g come to fruition 2020 is the estimated uh, start date rather than the full service Um, i'd also like to make sure that some of the sectors that aren't really digital enough are much more digital and healthcare would be amongst them
0: well mike thank you very much indeed for taking the time it's been a pleasure as always and uh, i hope we can continue the conversations in the future
1: thank you very much
0: There you go. It's not often you get to have a conversation with someone who can take you right from the very earliest days of the first SMS text messages being sent right through to the cutting edge of what's going on with driverless cars and wireless healthcare. Don't forget, you can find show notes for all of the things that we talked about at mobileuserexperience.com in the podcast section. Next week, we are talking to Timo Aupelto a founding partner of Lifeline Ventures, which is a VC firm that looks particularly for design talent and focuses on areas like healthcare and mobile and gaming. Uh, And we get some of his views on what's going on within that space and what's driving their user-centered design approach to uh, investing in those kind of companies. That's it for this edition. Thanks for listening. Don't forget you can send us feedback at mexfeed on Twitter or take a look at mobileuserexperience.com and send us an email through the links there. Goodbye.